most people think it affects the uber wealthy, right? Or the Bob Crafts of the world. And it may, but my guess is that folks like that will be able to rearrange their affairs and probably not be subject to it. It does affect business owners and retirees. And for your example, I mean, if I'm a small business owner and I sell my business, I've worked for 40 years to build up a pizza shop and I want to sell that business. I want to retire and move somewhere warm. When I sell that, if I sell it for you know over a million dollars, I'd be subject to it. But the point is they don't have a retirement plan. They don't have the state pension fund. This business is their nest egg and they're selling it once. And in that one time sale, they now would be subject to you know, a significant increase. It's going from 5% to 9%, so an 80% tax rate increase. And so I think it's capturing people certainly more than the uber wealthy as some of the proponents would have you believe. Welcome to Political Contessa. I'm Jennifer Nassor, and this show is here to support your interest in center-right politics, policy, and breaking news. Listen in and discover how to awaken your inner ideal candidate. And if you're ready, how you can jump in and change the world as a runner or a supporter. Welcome to Political Contessa. If you or a friend have ever considered running or you know a woman who should, I've got something just for you. My quick guide called Secrets from the Campaign Trail. It will show you five signs to tell you you're ready to enter the political arena. To get these tips and learn about all new podcast episodes and ways to get involved, head over to politicalcontessa.com. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Political Contessa. I am Jennifer Nassor, and I am your Political Contessa. This episode of Political Contessa was actually recorded in front of a live studio audience. Yes, you heard it. We took Political Contessa on the road and we recorded a session with Eileen McEnany, who is currently the president of the Mass Taxpayers Foundation. We did this in conjunction with the Pocketbook Project a nonpartisan organization dedicated to supporting and educating women who are running for office or interested in running for office, or honestly, just like what I do on Political Contessa, get you talking about politics and policy. So with us again, Eileen McEnany. She joined the staff of the Mass Taxpayers Foundation as its president in February of 2015. The Massachusetts Taxpayer Foundation is widely recognized as the state's premier public policy organization dealing with state spending, tax, and economic policies. Clearly something that in 2022, we are all, regardless of where you are from in the United States, all very concerned with. The foundation's record of high quality research and nonpartisan analysis has earned the organization broad credibility on Beacon Hill and across the state. Eileen is an attorney and she comes to the foundation after more than 20 years of government relations, public policy, advocacy, and managerial experience in both the public and private sectors. She is a graduate 
of Tufts University here in Massachusetts, where she received her Bachelor of Arts degree in political science, and she earned her JD in law from Suffolk University Law School. She serves on many boards and commissions and is just overall a brilliant policy mind. And also, I just want to point out, not partisan. This organization is not partisan. They are not Republicans. They are not Democrats. But what they are, are fiscal watchdogs. Don't we need more of that? I know here in very, very bright blue Massachusetts, we definitely need the fiscal watchdog. So Mass Taxpayer Foundation has put out a phenomenal white paper on what this ballot question we're going to be talking about today is about. So in Massachusetts, we have ballot questions, mainly because the majority in our legislature, which is Democratic, does not want to ever touch anything with a 10-foot pole. So we end up having ballot questions. So that way it can go to the voters. Just to put this out there, maybe Massachusetts is different than some other states, and I actually think the apathy here in voting is terrible, but 22% of the electorate actually came out and voted in the primary. So when I tell you that this is put out to folks in Massachusetts to vote on, it's actually kind of a joke because it's maybe 35 to 42% of voters will actually even see this. So ballot question number one in Massachusetts is called the millionaire's tax. Don't let the language fool you. So what it is, is that on the ballot in November, the voters will decide whether or not to approve a ballot initiative that would impose a new tax on income over a million dollars. If approved, this change, it takes place in the state's constitution So it's a constitutional amendment as of January 1st, 2023. So the Mass Taxpayers Foundation has already come out and said that they do not support this initiative out of concern for its fiscal and economic impact. And so this is going to, again, let me go back to this. It is going to change the Massachusetts constitution. It adds an additional 4% surtax on any income in excess of a million dollars. Now, that is not just the rich that make over a million dollars. That is if you sell your home, that is if you sell your business, that is if your business suddenly has a phenomenal year, you are going to get taxed. According to our state department of revenue, this tax change is proposed to raise approximately $2 billion. And the money is supposed to go to education and transportation, supposed to, but it's at the discretion of the Massachusetts state legislature. Again, I'm just going to say it is overwhelmingly left, left, not just democratic, but liberal. So we are leaving our legislators in control of where the money actually goes. Now, even if it goes to education and transportation, as I say, it will, you will hear from Eileen, who will clear a lot of these questions up for us. And so I have a lot of questions for Eileen, and I think that you will actually really enjoy hearing from her because, you know, even if you don't live in Massachusetts and this isn't, you feel like this isn't important to you. I'll tell you why this is coming to a state near you because if they do it in Massachusetts, they try everything in Massachusetts 
and then it moves on. It moves on like it's black mold. It creeps and it crawls really fast. And all of a sudden you see it either on your state ballot or coming out of your legislature. So thank you, Eileen, for being with us here today on Political Contessa on this very, very important topic of the so-called millionaire's tax. Eileen, ballot question one may seem non-threatening to some, but it seems like it will have a far-reaching impact on the state's financial position. So as someone who works so closely on these issues, I would really love for you to talk a little bit about the impact it will have and why we all need to be paying attention here. And mostly, the thing I would like to know about is, will this ballot question and the impact be subject to appropriations? Subject to appropriation. And so what that means is the legislature ultimately has authority over how the money will be spent. I don't want to go too into the weeds, but I will. So even if you agree, because no words in our Constitution are supposed to be unnecessary or superfluous. So if you believe that if this ballot question passes, the money has to go to education and transportation. And I do believe that. What that means, though, is it's the money from this surtax, which the Department of Revenue estimated to be roughly $2 billion. But right now, the state of Massachusetts spends much more than that on both education and transportation. So even if the legislature takes every dime of the money and puts it to education and transportation, all the money they're currently spending on it is fungible. It can go to other things. And so it doesn't mean there will be more. And, and so effectively, this really is about just giving the legislature more money. And I think if most voters knew that, they'd be less inclined to vote for it. The other thing that people may not fully appreciate is it puts the tax rate right in our constitution. So that's a pretty permanent thing. Once, if this is approved, it's pretty hard to undo this. It would require two constitutional conventions in at least four years. And so I tell you to think about how much the world has changed in the four years since the pandemic, okay? Our economy is fundamentally different than it was. And I think some of those changes are gonna be permanent, like remote work, okay? But just think about those implications. And if we pass this, and in circumstances change, and we think this wasn't a good idea, we want to amend it, we want to repeal it, there's no easy fixes for this. And I think that that's problematic. Anything that's permanent is should really be given more thought. And I think that, again, the way that the ballot question is written is meant to confuse people who just say the rich should pay their fair share. But at the, at the end of the day, too, I mean... The, the groups of people who would be impacted by this range from folks that make over a million dollars to the retiree who bought their house in 1956 and now sees that East Boston went from buying a house from $14,000 50 years ago to now, you know, over a million dollars, right? Yeah, I mean, so to be clear, you have to have over a million dollars to be subject to this. But I think most people think 
it affects the uber wealthy, right? Or the people, you know, that um, the Bob Crafts of the world. And it may, but my guess is that folks like that will be able to rearrange their affairs and probably not be subject to it. It does affect business owners and retirees. Um, and for your example, I mean, if I'm a small business owner and I sell my business, I've worked for 40 years to build up a pizza shop and I wanna sell that business, I wanna retire and move somewhere warm. Okay, when I sell that, if I sell it for you know, over a million dollars, I'd be subject to it. But the point is, they don't have a retirement plan. They don't have the state pension fund. This business is their nest egg, and they're selling it once. And in that one-time sale, they now would be subject to, you know, a significant increase. It's going from 5% to 9%, so an 80% tax rate increase. And so I think it's capturing people certainly more than the uber wealthy as some of the proponents would have you believe. Which ultimately I think is why I think the question, the ballot question or, or the way that they phrase it is a little bit shady in my opinion <laughs> because it is not really honest and forthright as far as who will be affected by this. So let's go back. So we have seen and in, in your publication you cite that about 46,000 people have left the state in the past year. Yeah, I mean, so that goes to when we started. I said I have fiscal concerns and I have economic ones. And just to finish the thought, the fiscal concerns are these, that if you look at people who do make a lot of money, the uber wealthy, their income comes primarily from things other than wages. So it's from interest and dividends and capital gains, which are tied directly to the economic cycle. And so in good times, they go up high. When there's a recession, they fall considerably. And I'll just give you an example. The last, the Great Recession, Massachusetts saw almost to a $3 billion swing in its tax revenues. You know, the, from the year that uh, before to the year of the, the Great Recession hit. The vast majority of that, about 1.7 billion, was from non-withholding income. And so the point is, it's not a good revenue source on which to build an annual operating budget because the cost you're gonna incur will be year after year, but this money will fluctuate considerably and so that's our concern. You're going to see much bigger swings and much greater budget challenges for the Commonwealth if they're relying on this to fund new programs. But to get to the economic issue, what MTF is concerned about is we just issued a report, 44-page, heeding the warning signs. It's on our website. All of you can take a look. But essentially what it does is we look periodically at cost of doing business in Massachusetts and this year, we looked at the cost of living here, because honestly, it's the flip side of the same point, right? If employers can't get employees to come, it's a problem. And so we looked at costs in general, and they're high in Massachusetts. And that may come as no surprise to any of you. We've been a high cost state since the 80s. And a lot of people would say, oh, you know, it doesn't matter, right? We've done well, our economy is doing great. You know, people come here, they want the jobs. But I would say COVID and the post-pandemic 
economy changed all that because now people don't have to come to where the jobs are. They can work remotely. And if you think about the Massachusetts economy, we have a lot of professional services, high tech workers, and others who are able to work remotely. Certainly not everyone, but a big enough portion. And they're already choosing to leave because they can go other places where their dollar goes further or where they can have a bigger house or where they don't have an hour commute to get to work. And so people are leaving Massachusetts and, and that's not something new, it's been going on for a while, but we've been able to backfill that migration of you know people born in Massachusetts going elsewhere with international immigrants, with, our, with students who come here and stay. And a lot of that has changed, just given the pandemic, giving some federal policies, we don't have the amount of international immigration that we once did. And we have a smaller student population for one, just demographically, there are fewer people of college age, but a lot of people are choosing to stay closer to home or maybe the cost are less. And, and so I think we have to be concerned about that pipeline. And that's the economic concerns we have, that if you add this cost on to people who are entrepreneurs, who are the innovators, who are the investors, they may choose to do that elsewhere. And I think that would have serious implications for the Massachusetts economy long term. My snarky comment is, I mean, especially as I'm getting older, who the heck wants to be here in our winters on top of on top of that when you could go someplace else where it's a lot warmer and the political climate is a little bit better. But that's that's my snarky end to that. I, because I've seen friends who have, you know, they're in their 50s, their kids are in college, and they've now decided, I can move to Florida. I can be there six months in a day, and there's a better financial situation, no state taxes. And then you look at what's going on in Massachusetts, and you just wonder, are those small businesses on our corners in our towns going to be able to survive? Because you could have your favorite nail salon, and I'm thinking of one in Boston that I love and, and I've gone to for a million years now, and they have like three locations. Well, you know, they could be making over a million dollars. At some point it becomes, you know, kids are in school, they're fine, shut down, and that's it. What happens to your neighborhoods? What happens to that tax base? But let's go back to another thing, because this is something that's near and dear to my heart, which is kids in schools. So one of the things that, again, I think that this question is kind of tugs at the heartstrings, right, by saying it's going to education. And, and we can talk about transportation after because, you know, that I think also is very poorly understood by a lot of people about how much money the, the MBTA has. But in schools, we have seen a decline in enrollment of kids in public schools. I know in private schools, they have seen a substantial uptick in enrollment. Those public dollars do not flow to the private schools. On top of all the folks who have left Massachusetts and more that will leave. So is our problem in our schools lack of funding or is there something else more systemic that has gone on but it's just very easy to call it money and funding and not look at the root causes of what the issues are, right? Because we have tons of money in Massachusetts. Will, will this help any of those issues in some of our failing school districts? 
I don't know. I mean, time will tell. But I guess what I would say, the question infers we need more money for education and transportation. And I would say, with respect to education, it's important for voters to realize, since this, this was first introduced, the legislature has passed the Student Opportunity Act, which gives $1.5 billion in additional resources to schools in Massachusetts. And the money is geared towards specific students, students for whom English is um, a second language, and, and, and other folks who may need additional resources. Um, so that is in the process of being implemented. So we don't know what the effects of that are. And part of it is um, it was implemented during COVID, right? So you know, we, we may have some catch up to do there. But there are resources that have been devoted that are new since this was first introduced. And because of the financial situation and the tax surplus and federal monies and so forth, we also have what I'll call a rainy day fund for K through 12 education, which is another half a billion dollars that's been set aside in case there need to be capital investments or other things. So I think that there are adequate resources. I think what you are getting at is, you know, are those dollars well spent? And I do think we could do a better job at just analyzing, have we achieved our intended results? And, and perhaps if not, change course. And that doesn't necessarily involve money, right? Um, some of it is oversight. Some of it is articulating what the goal is and making sure everyone knows. Some of that is coordination among different groups that, that have a role in education. There are a lot of things I think that could be done to help in that regard. So I don't think that money necessarily is the answer for education. I do think in transportation, the state needs money for transportation. Mass Taxpayers Foundation has written several reports. I think that's indisputable, right? You know, we have a $15 billion backlog to, to fix the capital assets of the MBTA, and then there are roads and bridges and other things. But what I would say is you can support revenues for transportation and not support this question because there are other ways to raise revenue for it that don't have the harmful economic impacts that we're anticipating. So I think there are other ways to raise money. And I think that Massachusetts needs to articulate a comprehensive plan for transportation that looks at if the gas tax diminishes because people are buying electric cars. Like, what does that mean? Um, how are we going to have climate resilient assets? Like, have a master plan for transportation and then figure out how much that will cost and have a plan to get there, rather than just saying, hey, let's give money to transportation and hope for the best, which is what this question does. Right. And, I mean, we also know that in the issues that we have, that it's not just the money, but it's the manpower, right? It's having having the people to be able to implement and to do the changes and to, you know, on the ground and, and elsewhere. Yeah. So, well, I clearly, I mean, I've been opposed to this thing since the first time I heard about it. I just think that it's, it's regressive. It's just another way to have a graduated tax. It's just calling, you know, a leopard something else, right? It's like, you know, saying it's a puppy. And it's not, and I think that it's really unfortunate, and it's going to really impact folks who don't think that they're going to be impacted by this. And I think that it's really important for everyone to call it out and to call it what it is. And I think it's regressive overall, and it's really going to hurt the state 
And I think we're already going to be hurt by losing our governor. <laughs> and I don't think that we, we should implement a new tax before we see where we can go and a new administration. And we already have a surplus. I mean, at the end of the day, it just seems like ill-timed based off of one, we have you know an amazing surplus, and two, as you pointed out, the economy is not in the best shape right now. We are 100% in, in the middle of a recession. We don't know where we're going, and, and it just seems like this could be, if it was going to be at a time, it should be a different time. So I don't think I say anything about that. The no, economy. no, okay. No, so that's me. Sure that's me. It's, it's, it's my podcast. Okay. Okay. All right. Just, just want to be clear. But, but um, what I would say is this: I, I think the history of the question would be of interest to voters for this reason. Massachusetts has tried five times in the past to introduce a graduated tax, and each time the voters have resoundingly rejected it because they were concerned. What they did in the past was they eliminated it's called the uniformity provision in the Constitution, which then would allow the legislature to tax people at different rates. And that's what they had tried. And voters rejected it because they were concerned that this year it'll be millionaires, next year it'll be people over 100,000, and the year after that, you know, people making 50,000 will be subject to different rates. And so voters didn't vote for that. And so this is a clever way to try to go at it again. They, they take away the argument that, oh, well, it's embedded right in the Constitution, so the legislature can't change the rate. And that is true, but it comes with its own set of issues. And so I think is a way to try to get this through. And then they also said, oh, and the money will go for education and transportation. And when it was tried um, four years ago by just um, regular citizens, and we challenged it in the court that it was putting too much into one question, the court agreed and they threw it out. So it was refiled this time as a legislative petition subject to, to different you know, aspects by the court when they reviewed it. But to me, the point is, this is kind of a way to circumvent some of voters' rightful concerns, but we're substituting one set of issues for another. And I think embedding it in the Constitution, for the reasons I've said, is pretty problematic because it doesn't, the legislature no longer has the ability to amend or repeal or change it if it becomes necessary. Excellent. Yes, actually, I'm going to open it up for questions from the audience since we're a live podcast. This part confused me a little bit. I probably shouldn't be. I probably should know it. But because it's a valid question, where is the intersection of this, you know, changing the Constitution? Can you help me understand? Sure. Is it just because it's a valid question, or is it written in the valid question that changes the Constitution? Is it just easy as that? No. So it is written into the ballot that it amends the Constitution. And so that's why it's been subject to a different process. Obviously, amending the Constitution isn't something you can do easily by design. And so it has required that there be two consecutive constitutional conventions, which is essentially both branches of the legislature meeting and passing it in two consecutive legislative sessions. So that's why my reference to the four years that's what I'm referring to. In order to amend the Constitution, you have to go through this process that takes a minimum of four years. 
And that's where we are. The, the legislature approved it in this, these constitutional conventions. It is on the ballot. And so if voters approve it, it goes into effect. And it goes into effect on January 1st of 2023, which is not a lot of time. And what I will tell you as someone who is a tax policy nerd, that typically when you have a tax law change, it's significantly longer because you have to define terms, right? You have to know, like, what is taxable income and, and, and how will this work and so forth. And the paragraph that makes up that ballot initiative is the language in its totality. So there are some unanswered questions which will fall to the Department of Revenue, my guess, to try to interpret and try to implement kind of almost as soon as um, if the voters approve it, my hope is that they don't because they realize um, it's fraught with peril. But but if it were to happen, it happens. It goes into effect January 1st, 2023. So with the this year with the surplus where we're having where the state's having to give back money to the taxpayers, if if this ballot initiative were to pass and we're again collecting maybe brings in an extra $2 billion. Every time there's a surplus again, are we, the state have to once again give it back so we don't even know how much money yeah. at the so, end of the day we would still have. So if the laws stay as they are on the books currently, so 62F, which is the law that you're referring to, remains in place, then it could be triggered by approval of this because if it raises the money that some have said it will of about $2 billion, there is a possibility, yes, that 62F would be triggered again and money would go back in the form of refunds. So again, I'm not sure that the people, the proponents of this fully appreciated that when they put it forward. That's a great question. Because <laughs> it's, I mean, it makes sense, right? Every time they collect that money, it could trigger and we could get money back. I mean, maybe it backfires, but it's in the Constitution, which is the, I mean, I think that becomes a very large problem, right, is whenever something is implemented and then you can't change it, then that becomes a serious situation. I mean, how many constitutional conventions have we had in Massachusetts over the past they have them somewhat routinely, like but um, well, they're but in they, and out. They go in, yeah, but they 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 haven't put forth one of this significance in, in a while. But what I would say is they cannot change the constitution easily. That's one of the points that I'm drilling. But I, I I think they can change 62F, right? And 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 so there may be a tendency on the part of Beacon Hill to do that, right? Which would undo what was a voter ballot initiative back in 1986. And there has, there has been talk on Beacon Hill to do that already. The concern is that the money that is refunded is going to higher income earners more so than to um, folks that make a lower or modest income. But to me, that kind of undermines the argument of the proponents because what it says is the vast majority of income tax is paid for by high income earners. So the notion that they're not paying their fair share is undermined by the fact that they are in fact, right? I mean, you can see that that is the result of, that is why 62F um, is working the way that it does because the refunds go to people, in, you know, 13% of what they pay. And so 13% of, you know, higher income is obviously more. And, and, and so on the one hand, 
folks are saying that millionaires don't pay their fair share, but I, I think the top quintile of taxpayers pay about 72% of all income taxes currently, and that's before this ballot initiative is enacted. So there is a lot of progressivity in the Massachusetts income tax code already. Right, I, which is what I was, <laughs> I was going to get to that in the, you know, where, where you do have that top tier is already paying the lion's share of taxes. And so it, again, it ends up being regressive and you end up pushing out those folks and, and there's no incentive. And Massachusetts, we are so fortunate to have so many universities that bring in folks from other countries and other states around the world and around our country and, and we want to keep that talent here. But if we then say, innovators, we're going to start taxing you, then Kendall Square goes away. And, you know, we say, um, you know, hey, finance folks, we don't want you. Then poof, there go from the biggest to the smallest of our financial institutions and our law firms. And, and I hate to see, one of the things I love about living in Massachusetts is being able to say we have such an educated, you know, our, everyone here is so educated and so giving and they work and they're okay paying those taxes, but everyone has a breaking point. And when you start having a family and you have to make those decisions and you can go someplace else, again, to my, you know, getting older and old tired bones, you could go someplace warmer, you could raise your family where you could buy a home with acres of property and have a great school district you know, I think you start thinking a little differently, and that's that's my fear with this, that we're going to be pushing out your kids, my kids, you know, and all of your kids, especially that little cutie back there, so. Yeah, I mean, so what, what I sometimes think of it as the notion of Massachusetts exceptionalism, that somehow, you know, everyone wants to be here, and, and I am, you know, born and bred in Massachusetts, and, and I think the state is wonderful, but I think other states are nice too, right? And, and, and I think people have paid a premium to live here. And, and I think the question is, um, is there a breaking point? And I think that a lot of people came here again because their jobs, the opportunities were located here. I think as people can work for a company, be employed by a company, but not necessarily physically located here, we're seeing some of that happen already. And, and so that's what I worry about. And, and I worry about it won't happen to tomorrow or the year after that, that it's a gradual thing, that it's the decision by a financial service firm to grow the job, move that call center elsewhere, or you know to have set up an office somewhere else. Or it's that the ecosystem that makes Massachusetts kind of the um, life science, pharma, biotech, healthcare hub uh, of the world, that is we don't have the density because there are choices to go elsewhere, that some of the value of being here diminishes over time. And that's my concern, that it's, we'll never be able to know what we didn't get or what we, you know, or um, the person who didn't come, right? And, and, and so I think that's my fear. Well, I see GE is pulling out of you know a at a fourth point which is a very 
um, had been a very up and coming area and filled with young people and GE is saying, we're ending our lease early. So, I mean, I think that's a great example of a company saying, you know, a quarter comes into the office, we don't need this office space anymore and recalibrate where, where should we be. So I think that that's, you know, a fear. Yeah, and I would say, I thought the, why you're gonna point out to GE is they were in Connecticut, headquartered there for decades and chose to move because, you know, the, the tax burden got too great, right? And they reached a breaking point and they came to Massachusetts because they could have the talented workforce and they felt kind of the energy and the economy and so forth for a whole bunch of reasons, you know, GE has gone through its own challenges and, and so that hasn't panned up. But I think the fact that a company like that chose to move to Massachusetts shows that that does happen. Right? And, and, and just to think, Massachusetts is a small New England state. The border to New Hampshire is not very far away. You know, I mean, I just, I think people have been doing that for a long time and, and I think they could even more so. So to me, it's, it's the, um, kind of damper it, it will put on the economic activity and the potential for Massachusetts. Any other questions? All right, yes. My name's Haley Jones, and I'm wondering if you can speak to why the courts even let this question get on the ballot, because the education and transportation part seems almost misleading and pretty deceitful, and is it really that phrase subject to appropriation that let it go through? Because I feel like we've seen this before, with the cigarette tax, I mean, did any of that money actually go to getting people to stop smoking? Was it really just that phrase, subject to appropriation, that let it go through? And so, I mean, I think it's a little more complicated than that in, in this sense. Um, again, to review a ballot initiative depends on who's bringing it forward, right? So in 2014, when it was first introduced, it was 10 citizens. And when it's a citizen's petition, um, it can't do what they call log rolling, which is essentially how I define it as putting everything but the kitchen sink into one ballot initiative to get sufficient voter support, right? And so by that, I mean, and the courts found that there were too many unrelated matters in the ballot as it is currently drawn, okay? So the wording hasn't changed, but the criteria the court uses to look at it has differed because the first round it was citizens, second round it was legislators, and they, they just review it with a different lens. But the issue is, um, I, I think that the courts did find that there were too many things in one question. For instance, maybe I think millionaires should pay more, right? And I agree, but you know what? I don't want the money to go to education and transportation. I think it should go to mental health and higher education or um, public safety, right? So. Like, I like part of the question, but not all of it, right? And the court said, there's just too many choices here. Like, so that, so the, it's not a meaningful choice, I guess, like that a voter can make, or it's, um, it's asking them to, to kind of group too many things. And, and so the courts threw it out on those grounds that it was unrelated matters. But when it's legislators that bring it forward, it's not subject to the same scrutiny. And so, the subject to appropriation means that the legislature has ultimate authority, but but I, the money that they raise from that will have to go to to, edu to education and transportation because the words can't be meaningless in the Constitution. But my point is, then they'll just kind of zero out some of the money that they currently use for that and put it towards other things 
So it doesn't guarantee there'll be more money. The money that's raised from that does have to go to education and transportation. But my point is most voters think that means, so in addition to what they're spending on education and transportation, the revenues from this new tax will go there too. And that isn't the case. Maybe we'll see what Boston City Councilors try to do. So implement the transfer tax on real estate and then give themselves a 20% increase in salary. So maybe they'll just take the current money for transportation education and move it over, which I always find to be a fun little game that they play. So the Eileen, the Mass Taxpayers Foundation has a publication, and I'm just going to give it a little plug because I think everyone should take a look at it called the ballot question number one, what it does and doesn't do. So, um, you know, please read it, check it out, give it to your friends and family, anyone who says, you know, we need to nail all those rich SOBs, make sure you show them that, uh, you know, their grandmother's house that they're living in and they haven't been assessed on in many years. When they go to sell it and it's in their name, they are the ones that are going to be paying for it. Um, it, it is a serious matter. And I think that it's something that in Massachusetts that I always thought was pretty fiscally prudent is um, I think it's a very big mistake for us. Well, hopefully voters will see the sense of not voting for it. So we'll find that out right soon enough. Absolutely. Well, Eileen, thank you so much for being with us today on Political Contessa in conjunction with the Pocketbook Project for this fabulous event and to listen and to hear and get some clarity on ballot question number one in Massachusetts. Eileen, again, is the president of the Mass Taxpayers Foundation. She has been the president since 2015. She is a policy expert and a lawyer. So listen to what she says, because we need to actually listen to the experts, not just the talking heads. I get to make the wise-ass comments, and she gets to actually give you the real information. Well, I hope my children and my husband hear that. Listen to what she says. <laughs> so, that's a key message. Thank you for being with me on Political Contessa. I'm Jennifer Nassor. I'm your Political Contessa. Stay happy, healthy, and safe. Thanks so much for listening to Political Contessa. For all the ways to listen and to get the inside scoop on what's happening in center-right politics for women like us, head over to politicalcontessa.com.